Okay, so for today, uh, we're talking about Hannah Arendt and Paulo Virno, uh, starting with Hannah Arendt. So um, I'll say a little bit about her life. She did actually have a fairly interesting life story. She was born in 1906 in Hanover, Germany, died in 1975. Um, and in the early part of her, especially her academic life, Hannah Arendt was not really interested in politics. She studied philosophy. She wrote her dissertation on the concept of love in St. Augustine and was primarily interested in just kind of pursuing that life of the mind. But if you look at the when she was born and where she was born, especially if you add to that knowing that she was Jewish, you begin to see the fact that even though she was not interested in politics, politics were interested in her and that she got caught up uh, and was involved in some of the resistance to Nazi Germany, um, especially was interested in, in publicizing to the rest of the world how serious uh, the Nazis were about their anti-Semitism. Um, and then she eventually emigrated to, to France and then to the U.S. And unlike a lot of her other contemporaries who did make it out of Germany and into the U.S., she stayed teaching at the University of Chicago and then later at the New School. And she wrote uh, several books, uh, The Human Condition in 1958, and before that, um, The Origins of Totalitarianism in 51, which is a book that became kind of uh, discussed in recent years. Um, the piece we're reading for today, the lecture she gave in 64 on labor work action, kind of gives a very distilled and uh, condensed version of the central argument from the human condition in which she undertakes this goal of looking at the human condition in terms of these three principal activities. So I'm going to talk about the reading, the lecture she gave, and but also talk about it in the sense of the larger book and project. Um, we're kind of using this, I mean, it would be, in the context of our class, it would be uh, a bit much to read the entire book, The Human Condition, it would take us a couple weeks at least to work through. Um, but it is an important text for reconsidering work. And I would actually, in some sense, argue it is perhaps one of the most important books in philosophy on work from a non and even perhaps anti-Marxist perspective, whereas most of the other people who have written uh, seriously about work in 20th century and in, even into the 21st century of philosophy have been to some extent influenced by Marx. Rent is in some sense an anti-Marxist, although she sees herself as a considerate one and that she takes Marx very seriously. Uh, in some sense, we're not going to get into this. There's some, some misreadings there, but that's another issue entirely. But her main task in, in this lecture and in the book, The Human Condition, which is kind of drawn from, is to look at the human condition, as she says, from the three principal activities that define human existence labor, work, and action. As she says in the lecture, this is very different from looking at 
human life from the perspective that most philosophers take, which is looking at the life of the mind, the life of contemplation. And to some extent, in Arendt's view, the overemphasis on contemplation as the defining characteristic of human existence uh, tends to obscure and muddle the distinctions of labor, work, and action, which are all seen as just kind of the active noise that that distracts from contemplation. Um, although it is worth pointing out, I'm not going to get too much in your discussion of vita activa and vita contempliva as two different times of life. She does take up the position, which uh, I think Virno especially, but other philosophers might disagree with, that the contemplative life is optional. The active life is kind of unavoidable. Not everyone contemplates, but everyone is engaged in active life. So having said that, um, I think it's useful to think about when it comes to these three different activities, labor, work, and action, Arendt's primary goal is to think about them in terms of what they do in the sense of how they shape us and how they shape a particular way of making sense of the world. But she's also interested in what happens when the distinction between these different activities breaks down or gets muddled. And that already comes up in the first distinction, because one of the, the challenges, and this is what Arendt says in the lecture, and may have occurred to other people when reading it, is that the distinction between work and action has a long history. Going back to Aristotle, as we talked about, Aristotle's distinction between uh, production and action, uh, poesis and praxis in the, in the Greek, um, has a long, long history as two different activities. One, production, which has a goal outside of itself and, and, and it's instrumental towards completing an action, kind of being its own goal. But the distinction between labor and work doesn't seem to have a long history. And if it doesn't have a long history, it seems completely lost today. And to some extent, Arendt, to make a case for this, points out that there are these two separate words, and the fact there are two separate words throughout multiple European languages, at least, suggests that at some point uh, people thought that there was a, a meaningful distinction to be made between labor and work. Um, and then she turns back to someone who we've read, John Locke, and John Locke gives a version of this distinction. John Locke, when he writes, uh, this is she quotes this on page 170, the labor of our body and the work of our hands. Um, John Locke says, of course, the labor of the body and the work of his hands are his, referring back to the idea that labor is the basis for property. And so there is a distinction we need to, to bring it to, to, uh, to excavate it. Um, and I think to take another example, not Arendt's example, one way we can get at what this distinction might be about is to think about an example where we might use the word labor, but the word work would be inappropriate. Because um, they're often exchangeable, right? You know, D Department of Labor tabulates statistics about work. Um, we often go back and forth in these two words, but the one place where you use the word labor where the word work would not fit is... You may have already thought of this 
is going into labor. You know, going into labor is a very different sentence than going to work. We use the word labor to refer to childbirth. And that childbirth aspect, as well as the labor of the body, suggests for rent what labor means or should mean or once meant. And that labor is concerned with the activities, as she says on page 171, labor, in other words, produces consumer goods. Laboring and consuming are but two stages of the ever-recurring cycle of biological life. So labor is tied up with the production and reproduction of life. And because of that, it has this very cyclical nature in the sense that no sooner has it uh, been finished that it's begun again. I mean, for me, the classic example of this is when you decide to say, really clean your house or apartment, and you really want to get, you know, deep clean, cut, clean everything. Um, no sooner are you usually done, then you're like, oh my God, now I'm really hungry. And you go into the kitchen, which you just cleaned, and you start cooking something. And it's already, uh, uh, you've already gone back into making a mess. So that labor has this kind of cyclical nature, which means the things that we do in labor are things we can never be done with. We're never going to uh, be totally finished cleaning. We're never going to be totally finished cooking. We're never going to be totally finished caring for the basic necessities of life. Now, Arendt sees an upside in that. As she says on page 172, the blessing of life as a whole inherent in labor can never be found in work and should not be mistaken for the inevitably brief spell of joy that follows accomplishment and tends achievement. The blessing of labor is that effort and gratification follow each other as closely as producing and consuming so that happiness is concomitant of the process itself. There is no lasting happiness and contentment for human beings outside of the prescribed cycle of painful exhaustion and pleasurable regeneration. Whatever throws this cycle out of balance, misery where exhaustion is followed by wretchedness, or entirely effortless life where boredom takes the place of exhaustion in the mills of necessity or consumption and digestion, grind an impotent human body mercilessly to death, ruins the elemental happiness that comes from being alive. And she goes on to talk about how every job can become a kind of labor if you have to do it again and again and again. Um, so, but she also says, more importantly, this is a very different formulation than any other philosopher, especially Marx, would give, that there is a pleasure in this exhaustion and rejuvenation. So maybe this is the first discussion question for this week um, is, what does she mean by that? Do you agree? I'll give you another question when we get to Vierno later. So, um, labor produces things which, uh, by their very existence, are finite and expiring, right? As soon as you make that sandwich, it's already begun to go bad. I, technically, all the ingredients, the bread has already begun to go stale, the meat has begun to rot, um, so on for vegetables, right? That 
on the consumption cannot last. This is distinct from work. The things that work produces are lasting things. Um, as she says on page 173, destruction, though unavoidable, is incidental to use but inherent in consumption. Right? The thing that work produces, they can get used up, right? Shoes are made and they're worn out. But if they're not used, they can last for a very, very long time. Um, in the sense that, you know, as anyone who's been to eBay knows that, you know, someone can find some box of old, you know, original Air Jordans and put them for sale for probably a lot, a lot of money right now because no one wore them. They're not used up, but there are no antique sandwiches on eBay. Um, and this begins to get, we, we see here a little bit about what happens, even though we haven't got totally into what, what she means by work, but we can see a little bit about what happens when the distinction between labor and work breaks down. Because as Arendt says, we live in a consumer society and most of the things that we use that are really products of work, we treat more or like products of consumption. In the sense that, you know, if you're to be honest with yourself, I think most people probably stop wearing clothes, particular items of clothing, long before they wear out. Because that's what fashion is, right? Fashion is nothing but an expiration date stamped upon clothing. It is the fact that you will stop wearing this long before it falls to tatters. And similarly, you could argue that there's an expiration date with electronic goods as upgrades and obsolescence and so on. Um, so we tend to treat things that are really products of work as products of labor. So now we get a little bit into what she means by work. And what work produces is not just objects, but objectivity. As she says on page 174, Against the subjectivity of man stands the objectivity of man-made artifice, not the indifference of nature. Right. So the world we live in is made up of houses, beds, cars, roads, etc. And these things sort of give some kind of stability to life. Without it, um, everything would be kind of in flux and moving. So if, if labor is defined by being cyclical, by exhaustion, rejuvenation, uh, cleanliness, dirtiness, etc., which kind of blend into each other, work is defined by a definite end and a means to that end, right? At some point, work, you can be totally done making something. You make the table out of wood, the table is done, there's nothing. Um, that table, if it's, if it's solid and well-made, you're set for having a table for life, right? It's done. Um, so in work, unlike labor, there's a definite ends. And work is defined by a kind of means-end relationship. The end justifies the means in the sense that 
at the end of the day, you know, um, the, the, the means might involve destruction. It might involve chaos in the sense of making a big mess of things that you chop down the tree and uh, convert its, its wood into planks and turn those planks into a table. But at the end of the day, if a table looks good, then the destruction, the loss of the tree, the chaos, the messy workshop are all justified by the thing that is produced. As he says, um, the fabrication process are determined by the category of means and ends. And although she does point out that, that ends tend to become other means, right? The table was the end of the production process, but it's the means to, you know, the place you sit to do homework. Um, and you could even argue that the homework is a means to complete the class and the completing the class is to graduate and to graduate is to get the degree and to get the degree is to get the job and to get the job is to get the money and to get the money is to buy the things, consume the consumer goods that will make you supposedly happy. So that there's a certain sense in which even though the end is very distinct from the means, every means could become an end and this, this viewpoint of instrumentality could take over all of existence. Um, and this begins to get us into the real thing she's worried about. She's not really worried. I and mean, we talked about what happens. Labor has taken over work, right? We don't produce lasting things anymore. This is something that Matt Crawford also talked about. Things are made to be used up. Labor has taken over the world of work. That's not the real thing she's concerned with. The real thing she's concerned with is that work has taken over the realm of action. But in order to understand that, we have to understand what action is. And action is what we do in our interactions with each other. Actions are the things we say and the things we do in relation with other people that affect and shape how other people see us and react. Action, to some extent, is where a life is made, right? As she says, um, you know, this is what we really, what we really mean by by biography, um, by the things that make up one's life, or the things that one has done in set over the course of one's life. As she says, um, that every individual life between birth and death can be eventually told as a story with a beginning and an end is the pre-political. And prehistorical condition of history, the great story without without beginning and end. Um, so, uh, action is how we individuate ourselves. It is also how we interact with others. Action only makes sense given the presence of others. Unlike labor, if you're the last person on earth, you'd probably still have to labor somewhat. I mean, you wouldn't clean your house because you just move into an, another abandoned house, but you still have to do some stuff. Um, uh, you wouldn't necessarily have to work, but you couldn't act. Acting demands the presence of others. And because of that, this is what, one of the strangest things she says about action on the, on the bottom of uh, page 180. In action, in contradistinction to working, it is indeed true that we can really never know what we are doing. Now, why is that? And this is strange because she considers action to be the, the defining characteristic of human existence. So why is it 
we can never know what we're doing. And it's because of the presence of others. If I go out to Monument Square and decide to make a speech about, say, the fact that our political leaders are indifferent to all the suffering that has been created because of COVID-19 and the pandemic and have done very little to offer us aid and support, I cannot control how that speech will be received or understood. Someone could hear me, and God forbid, decide that I'm right, they're very convinced by what I'm saying, and they could decide to storm the Capitol. Well, that's not what people were actually storming the Capitol about, but they could. It's happened recently. They could decide to storm the Capitol. Now, I may have not intended that, um, but I could not possibly have controlled for that because the very thing which makes action possible, my freedom, also shapes how it is received by others. And as Arendt says, this is why we have the two things we, we do to deal with uh, this the unpredictability of action. One, we have our capacity to make promises, which is in some sense our capacity to say, even though by definition as a human being, I'm kind of unpredictable because I'm free, I'm going to tell you I'm going to do this and not do this. So I'm going to make myself more predictable to you. That's what a promise is on some level. And we have the capacity to forgive. Right? If I gave my speech in Monument Square and it led to something like a uh, assault on the Capitol, I would definitely apologize. Um, and I would hope people would understand that that's not what I intended and, and accept my apology. Now, here's the, the, the real threat. This is going to set up the contrast with Paulo Virno, um, who we'll get into after the little break is that Arendt's real worry is that work is overtaking action. Um, and by that, we don't just mean, although we partly mean that politics has become a profession, a job, but it's more that politics has taken on some of the qualities of work. The qualities being this instrumental means and relationship where you have a goal and you engineer your product to arrive at that goal. To take one example, modern political speeches, modern political campaigns are in some sense designed and created not unlike new products, new lines of automobiles where you have, you bring together test groups and focus groups you try th certain things out. You find out that certain speeches aren't really working well with soccer moms or not really working well with men age 35 to 55. And you recreate, you tweak it and so on and so forth to produce the right product, to produce the right instrumental action, which is to get a politician elected re-elected, right? which is why modern political speeches are so incredibly forgettable. Right? There is no version of a, I had a dream, etc. They're usually a series of, of, of pre-programmed cheap lines to get applause um, and arrive at the 
proper destination, which is that of the right attitude towards the candidate. So um, we have lost we have lost the uh, individual kind of authenticity of action. We've lost the unpredictability of action. And in doing so, in, in trying to make politics more and more of an instrumental activity like work, we've lost sense of action, which for rent is the defining characteristic of human life that we act. Um, yeah, so that's all I want to say about rent. After the break, we'll talk about Paulo Virno, and Paulo Virno is going to take up this distinction between labor, work, and action in a very different um, and, and perhaps more contemporary variation. Okay, so now we're going to turn our attention to Paulo Virno. Paulo Virno was born in 1952 in Naples, Italy, which I think makes him, aside from the first week we read the Crawford piece, um, the first living person we've read in our history of philosophy section of the class. Um, so as I said, he was born in 1952 in Naples, uh, he finished his his dissertation in in 1977. Um, Vino too had an interesting life. He was um, he was arrested um, during the tumultuous years of the 70s in Italy. He was arrested and charged as being part of the Red Brigades, um, a, a communist terrorist group. Um, he was eventually acquitted and released. Um, and now he teaches at the University of Rome. Um, and uh, we're reading a section from the Grammar of the Multitude, uh, the second day where he discusses labor activity and intellect. And to some extent, um, as he, you know, he opens this thing with a discussion of precisely what we're talking about with Hannah Arendt, the distinction between uh, work and action, um, or production and action, which, as he points out, comes from Aristotle, was kind of revived by Arendt, although he adds to his discussion, he adds intellect. Um, and that is, in some sense, going to change uh, some of the um, uh, questions of this. Thinks of three activities, labor, intellect, and, and politics. Um, but as we saw, you know, with Arendt, Arendt's concern was that, and she's writing this in the in the 1950s and the 60s, that politics was being taken over by work. Um, Virno writing, uh, I don't remember the exact dates of the Italian version of the book. The book was translated in 2004, writing in the in the 1990s and into the next millennium thinks that 
um, it's time, some almost 50 years later, to turn that prediction on its head. He thinks that it is more often the case that not so much that labor um, has taken over, work has taken over action, um, but the opposite. As he says, um, he says, uh, Politics, according to Arendt, this is page 51, has taken to imitating labor. The politics of the 20th century, in her judgment, has become a sort of fabrication of new objects, the state, the political party, history, etc. So then I maintain that things have gone in the opposite direction from what Arendt seems to have believed. It's not that politics have conformed to labor. It is rather that labor has acquired the traditional features of political action. My reasoning is opposite and symmetrical with respect to that of Arendt. I maintain that is in the world of contemporary labor that we find being in the presence of others. The relationship with the presence of others, the beginning of new processes, and the constitutive familiarity with contingency, the unforeseen, and the possible. I maintain that post-Fordist labor, the productive labor of surplus, subordinate, subordinate labor, brings into play talents and qual qualifications which, according to a secular tradition, had more to do with political action. So I want to unpack that statement in terms of what does he mean by that? Well, first I want to say something about Fordist and post-Fordist because we haven't really got into this because we're going to talk more about the history of work in the later sections of the class. Um, but Ford refers, of course, to Henry Ford, and Fordist refers to the assembly line, right, where work was highly divided highly regimented, and um, to the extent there was any kind of communication as part of the work process, it was always one direction. The engineers told the workers what to do, and the workers were supposed to quietly go about doing it. Now, uh, Virno thinks that post-Fordist work has, as he says, taken on the qualities of action. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, think about even, and this is what I think is interesting about Virno's pr pronouncement. He's not really thinking about a necessarily specific place of work. He's thinking about the way in which aspects of communication and interaction have become integral to all different types of work. Uh, but to take one example, working, say, in the service sector, in retail um, or in food service as a waiter, um, there, what are you really doing? You are primarily interacting with people um, and primarily a lot of that interaction is going to be very rote, very repetitive, saying the same things again and again. But, and this is where the discussion of contingency comes in, it's not always that way um one is when everyone's in the presence of others as Arendt said there's always a certain degree of unpredictability and that unpredictability has now become part of the work process so whereas Arendt was concerned that action was being taken over by work becoming instrumental engineered to produce certain kinds of effects. 
Virno thinks the exact opposite has happened, that so much of our work life is a kind of political life in the sense that we interact with others, we communicate with others, we say and do things um, that uh, relate to unpredictable situations. Um, and in some extent, work has become so much more communicative and interactive. Now, there are a couple consequences of this. One, um, as, as Virno says on page um, 63, that this brings possible a kind of almost a new kind of um, alienation. When he says uh, on the bottom of that paragraph on page 63, middle paragraph, nobody is as poor as those who see their own relation to the presence of others. That is to say, their own communicative faculty, their own possession of a language reduced to wage labor. So one way to think about what he means by that is um, if you've ever had a job where you have to answer the phone, you're using language, your communicative capacity, and you get so used to answering the phone and saying whatever it is you're supposed to say that you end up saying the same thing when you answer your own phone, right? So your co communicative capacity becomes uh, alienated in a sense that you don't really control it anymore. You see this, as we'll see in, in, in the next couple of weeks, we get in talking about um, emotional labor and people who deal with services, the sense of if you interact with people, we'll talk about flight attendants all day, it becomes hard to turn that off. So it's a certain kind of, I'm calling it alienation, though Virno calls it a kind of poverty. Um, and the second consequence that follows from this is, um, and, and one of the useful things about Virno, I mean, there are a lot of different references and texts he talks about in the chapter and in the book. Um, Arendt is a, is a big figure for him, and we've read Arendt. But the other big um, concept that we've encountered before that becomes very important for Paulo Virno is the notion of the general intellect. We saw this in Marx, in Marx's discussion of machinery, where Marx talks about you know, nature builds no locomotives, et cetera, et cetera. They're products of the general intellect. And what Marx meant by that is that the totality of humanity's scientific and technical knowledge becomes the primary productive force in capitalist society, embodied in machines. Now, Vino thinks that the general intellect should be understood as not just embodied in machines, but it is also in human beings, right? Because this is one of the other points he wants to make about this, this idea that work has become more and more like action is this idea that, you know, he's, as he refers to it as a kind of virtuoso without a score in the sense that um, when one is dealing with human beings um, in 
services in uh, industries we often think of in terms of communication, etc. Um, one is in some sense a virtuoso in the sense of using these particular skills to communicate, interact with others, but there's not a score to be played, right? Because there's a distinction here to be made between, um, you know, because as, as Vino points out, one of the big problems that Marx had and it's a problem that Adam Smith had too in, in political economy had in general is they tend to look down upon uh, work that didn't produce a product. And they did that for all sorts of reasons, historically speaking, because they considered that kind of work, service work, to be a remnant of monarchies and feudalism and that the emerging capitalist world produced products primarily, although now in the 21st century, in this country at least, we're kind of back in the strange thing where um, it is producing that a lot of work involves a service. Um, so a lot of work involves a kind of virtuoso without a score. And what does that mean? Well, it means that um, when one deals with... Uh, uh, interacting with people is the primary source of one's job. Yes, there are a lot of times, and anyone who's worked service knows this, where you have to say the same thing in it again and again. Um, you know, thanks for coming, how might I help you, etc. Do you want fries with that? And so on. But there is also the possibility that um, one has to constantly interact and react to new situations. As um, Virno says on page 66, um, general intellect should not necessarily mean the aggregate of the knowledge acquired by the species, but the faculty of thinking, potential as such, not as countless particular realizations. The general intellect is nothing but the intellect in general. Here it is useful to go back to the example of the speaker, which we've already examined. With the infinite potential one's linguistic faculty as the only score, a locutor, any locutor, articulates determined acts of speech. So then the faculty of language is the opposite of a determined script of an end product with these or those unmistakable characteristics. Virtuosity for the post-Fortis multitude is one and the same as the virtuosity of the speaker. Virtuosity without a script, or rather based on the premise of a script that coincides with pure and simple dynamics, with pure and simple potential. Um, and as Virno talks about, this is what he writes about his other writings as well, is that in a weird way, um, potential has become much more important to contemporary labor than actual um, knowledge, actual um, abilities, and so on. In other words, the ideal employee of contemporary post-Fortist labor is one that uh, advertises themselves, sells themselves in terms of their capacity to learn new things rather than their specific knowledge of existing things. It's that 
And this is why you see words throughout, you know, contemporary work, potential, flexibility, innovation, entrepreneur, etc. These all reflect the fact that what is constantly being put to work is not is as Virno puts it, the intellect in general, one's general capacity to learn new things and to react to new situations. Um, so that's uh, a brief overview of some of the things that Reno talks about. The main question that I wanted, so this is the second question. The first question I gave you from Arendt had to do with the um, pleasure of labor and I'll state these both in the discussion board. The second question coming from Virno just really has to do with Virno's um, response to Arendt. Which one do you think is more accurate or better captures the contemporary political and economic moment? Is it Arendt's version in which work is overtaking action so the realm of politics, of political action, has become predictable, instrumental, and engineered? Or is it Virno's version where um, action is overtaking work so that one's time spent at work is beginning to resemble more and more the political sphere in terms of dealing with contingent situations, um, expressing yourself in multiple different ways and utilizing not so much specific sets of knowledge, but one's capacity to learn new things. So that's the second question from, uh, from today.